Welcome back, South Carolina. I'm your host, Brandon Peak, and this is Podcast 1854. Hello, South Carolina. Welcome back to another episode of Podcast 1854. Today, we're joined by Sherry Few, the superintendent candidate for South Carolina. Ms. Sherry, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you, Brandon, for having me on. Yes, ma'am. So will you um, tell us, you know, a little bit about yourself? Who is Sherry, you know, in your family? Sure. Well, um, I'm married to Marty Few, and he and I have four boys, and we've lived in Lugoff, South Carolina for over 30 years. All of my boys uh, graduated from public schools, and some went on to get college degrees. And I've been involved with education policy and fighting for uh, parental authority in education ever since my children were in middle school. And so it began for me with um, some insidious sex education curricula and standards that were being adopted by the state board of education. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, back around the year 2000. So I've been involved with education policy and fighting for parental authority in education for nearly 20 years. So it started there and uh, we, myself and others around the state were successful in having the sex education standards um, improved and focus more on abstinence uh, rather than teaching children how to have sex. Mm -hmm. And um, from there, I started South Carolina Parents Involved in Education. And that organization, one of our early victories, and really I was mostly working by myself on this issue, was a bill became came before the legislature that would have mandated vaccines for 11-year-old girls to prevent a sexually transmitted disease. And so I was adamantly opposed to this idea about the mandatory vaccines. And when I started the fight, there were over 50 Republican legislators sponsoring the bill. Uh, but by the time we were done, people were removing their name off of the bill and it died. Uh, it was actually tabled by its sponsor and it died. So we had an early victory. Do you know why? Like, did they tell you why all of a sudden they was into it and then they pulled their name off of it? Well, that was a direct result of my lobbying uh, for for educating these uh, legislators about how ridiculous it is to require a vaccine for um, a pre-adolescent girl to prevent a sexually transmitted disease. All of the other vaccines that are required to attend school at that time were for uh, communicable diseases, things that you could catch in the classroom. You can't catch a sexually transmitted disease in the classroom, at least I wouldn't hope so. So um, once they, they began to understand um, our perspective, uh, then they decided it wasn't such a great idea and it was, was not popular in the public. So I could imagine. I've had, ex yeah. So I've had experience fighting mandatory vaccines, uh, before, you know, long before COVID was even heard about. Um, so after that, I began, uh, working against the common core standards and I led the fight against the common core standards we had a very well-organized effort. I had uh, state chapters, regional chapters all over the state. Mm -hmm. And um, hundreds of people would, you know, come to Columbia from 
all over the state to lobby against the Common Core standards. Um, so we had a bill that we were pushing to repeal Common Core, but unfortunately, right at the end, um, Palmetto Promise Institute, who is the organization founded and directed by Ellen Weaver, which is one of my opponents. Okay. Yes, Miss Weaver, came, she'll be joining us. <clears throat> yeah. Well, they came in with a plan that they suggested we could fix the Common Core standards instead of repealing them, and um, so some so the amendments that they wanted were passed, and we ended up with Common Core rebranded because the bill only required the State Department of Education to rewrite the standards. And the next superintendent was Molly Spearman, and she gave us Common Core rebranded. So to this day, children have been subjected to these faulty standards for nearly 10 years. So that's another issue in my platform uh, that I'm talking about because the, the standards are really harmful, especially the young children. Mm -hmm. uh, the K through three standards require children to think abstractly, which their minds are not developmentally capable of doing. Mm -hmm. And so it's very frustrating and, and it undermines the, uh, the beginning of their education. Um, and, and it's no wonder that children aren't faring well. And uh, it puts a lot more work grades. on them. Yes, it does. There's there were a lot of problems with the Common Core standards. Um, you know, they replaced a lot of uh, um, classic literature with what they call informational text. Yes. By the time you're in high school, it's seventy percent informational text, which is dry, boring, technical documents. So uh, children are are not um, being reared in the classic literature that teaches so much about life. And so the standards are, are poor, and um, it's unfortunate that my opponent, Ellen Weaver, has uh, claimed publicly that uh, they led the fight against Common Core, and I've called her out on that with a Facebook Live video I did last week. And um, so anyway, let me let me finish telling you a little bit more about my experience. Yeah, for so sure. So after the, after the Common Core fight... Um, I was, you know, we were all just burnt out because we worked really long and hard on this, you know, just to to have the legislature amend it and, and not repeal it. But then I started talking to some people around the country who had similar experiences. Yeah. So people that had led the fight in their state to end Common Core only to end up with rebranded standards. So I uh, coalesced with these people. And we expanded South Carolina Parents Involved in Education into a national organization. And it's called United States Parents Involved in Education. So that was about six years ago. And our mission uh, is to end, to close the Federal Department of Education and end all uh, federal education mandates. Because we realized that it's the federal government that is always pushing these negative uh, pedagogies into states. So Common Core was incentivized by federal money, just like critical race theory is today. Uh, the federal government gave money to um, every state in the nation, billions of dollars mm -hmm. uh, under the guise of COVID. And 190 required... billion total nationwide, if I'm not mistaken, 190 billion went to yeah, schools. That's a lot of money. That's a, a lot, lot of money. Of money. And so the last round, the ESSER three funds required that um, 
if you accept the money, you have to certify that you would advance equity and inclusion. So equity and inclusion is um, one of the names that critical race theory falls under. Mm -hmm. And um, our state in particular made it um, a top, one of the top three priorities was social emotional learning, which is another way that they get critical race theory into the schools. Yes, I've noticed that. So USPI or United States Parents Involved in Education, um, you know, we're fighting these things all over the country. We have 20 state chapters that are organized and, and on the ground working against critical race theory. We kind of put our mission to end federal education mandates on hold once the election, the presidential election was stolen and, you know, we lost control of Congress. Our, our efforts were sort of mute. So we sort of revisioned our mission statement to focus more on uh, parental and local control of education and empowering parents at the local level and recommending that they run for school board and, and take over their school boards and in many cases fire their superintendent for these egregious pedagogies that are happening in our schools that are indoctrination and anti-American, anti-Christian, just goes against um what our country stands for. Yeah. And I agree with that when, especially with the local level, I try to tell, you know, so many people that it starts, you know, on the local level and then it builds up, you know, Mm -hmm. you can't sit there and the school boards, uh, the superintendents, things like that, uh, your, your county council, city council, it starts on a level like that. And then it works up. You have to get the right people in place before we can start seeing change. Right, right. So it's very imperative that we get more people involved. And um, I would call them couch politicians is what I would call them, you know, or uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I would call them. They they, they don't understand. They'll sit on the couch and criticize and put everyone else down, but they won't get involved to do something. Well, that's one of the encouraging things. and, And perhaps the silver lining of COVID is that parents have really awakened and and I don't mean it in the woke sense. Oh, I know <laughs> what you mean. Yeah, for sure. I know exactly what <laughs> but, you mean. But they have um, recognized, you know, what their children are being taught. They see it. Uh, they didn't like the, the masking um, of, of their children and began fighting that. And so, you know, we've got Moms for Liberty groups all over the state. I think there's six or seven chapters of them now. Yes, they're awesome. And, and this and this is happening all over the country. So that's the encouraging piece is that parents um, are pushing back and they are demanding the authority over their children's education, rightly so. So we've been involved with that movement. We've provided resources through our website, um, you know, because a lot of these parents have never been involved politically and they're a little naive to the process and it can be a bit intimidating. So uh, we've, yep. we've been training them and showing them, you know, how to um, how to get around the school board and, and deal with the, the bureaucracy therein. So um, and then here locally in South Carolina, my daughter-in-law, April Few, she and I have been traveling the state and making presentations on critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, we go into a county and we present what critical race theory is. We show them how to find it in their schools because, like I said, it's under different names. It's not called critical race theory. It's it's not a curriculum or a textbook that you'll find in the classroom. 
it's it's a pedagogy it's a way of teaching a method exactly and a, a lot of it is brought in through professional development or teacher training and we we've done uh presentations that covered 11 school districts in our state and in every instance we have found evidence of critical race theory in those districts and we present that evidence uh while we're presenting to the local community so that's what we've been doing on the state level and i had no intention of running for state superintendent of education in fact when molly spearman announced she would not be seeking re-election mm -hmm. um, people were asking me if i was going to run or if i was willing to run and I told everyone, no, no, um, I'm done with that. I ran eight years ago against Molly Spearman. That was in 2004, right? 2014. 2014. Yeah. And it was a nine candidate race, huge field of candidates. I think we're up to six in this one already, but there were nine candidates. And, you know, if one candidate doesn't get more than 50% of the vote, you go into a runoff. So I was uh, the third highest vote getter and just narrowly missed the runoff in that election. But either way, I was done with running for office. I've, I've run for several things in, in my um, adult life and just was very comfortable with my life as it is. You know, I'm still directing the national nonprofit and doing that work and, you know, traveling the state, doing our presentations. But I'm, that is with the uh, SC Parents Involved Education? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And um, so, and then I have two elderly parents that I enjoy having the time to take care of and spending time with my grandchildren. So I, like I said, I told people, no, I'm, I'm not running, but I'm very interested in the race and I want to get behind a good candidate and help them and mentor them and hopefully help them to win. So I was even collaborating with a group in the upstate um, to recruit a candidate and I thought I was collaborating. Come to find out, they went and picked someone on their own and then let me know who it was. And I learned that it was a moderate and a rhino. And I said, there's no way that I can support that candidate. So that's when I started praying about running because I thought, you know, I should seek the Lord about this. I, I shouldn't just say, I'm not going to do it without praying about it. Exactly. I like and this, especially because it seems like when we are comfortable in our life, that's the time that God will say, you know, well, I want you to do this and step out of your comfort zone. So I did pray for a week or 10 days, and I felt like I had confirmation in several different ways that this indeed was what God was calling me to do. So I got the blessing from my husband and my family who are all very supportive and the leadership of our national organization, because in order for me to put the time in to run for office and, and put the effort in that it takes to win, I needed I needed all of their support. And they all very willingly uh, are supporting my efforts to run and to win. And so I'm in it. <laughs> and um, so some of my primary issues are, you know, of course, to ban critical race theory. Yeah. And uh, when you say that, so for some people that are listening, they they hear that being talked about, but they don't necessarily right. understand what it means because I've had people say, hey, you know, can can you explain that to me? So if you could, when, when you talk about CRT, critical race theory, could you 
explain to the, our listeners what exactly that is and why we don't want it taught in our schools? Sure. That's a very good question. So critical race theory actually started as critical theory. Mm-hmm. And it's a Marxist theory that came out of the Frankfurt School, which was in Germany. Okay. And and during World War II, uh, when the Nazis uh, were in control, they ran the Frankfurt School professors out of the country. And they came to the United States and took up shop at uh, Columbia University. I think it was called New York. You know, it's in New York. Um So that's where they took their critical theory, their Marxist theory, their ideologies into the United States, and it grew from there. So critical theory is essentially criticizing um, anything in society. So there's lots of different theories. There's uh, critical queer theory, critical feminist theory, and then most recently critical race theory. And, and, the Marxist roots are in the fact that it sets up groups of people against one another. I agree. Um, so, so in the case of critical race theory, it's, it's um, people of color against whites. So it's a whole group of people of different colors. They call them black and brown people. So everybody against whites and whites are oppressors and the people of color are oppressed and our country under this theory believes that, um, excuse me, the theory believes that our country is systemically racist. And, um, and, and the really sad part about it for black children, I believe, is that black children are taught that um, they cannot succeed except for uh, white people allowing them to do so, which is such a sad thing. Yeah, because um, I dis- and, and- I disagree with that. You know, I, I truly mm-hmm. do. And it's like I tell anyone, you can do anything you want to, and especially in this day and time, 2022. And <clears throat> if history, that's why another thing, history is so important. And I said this on one of my last episodes, I think it was with uh, Ingrid Centurion. I sat there and told her, you know, when it comes to history, it's not meant for you to like or dislike. You can if you want to, but that's not what it's there for. It's meant to teach us a lesson. It's meant for us to learn. Sometimes we need to revisit history to actually teach us something today, or we need to learn, hey, that that's a bad route. We can see this happening because it's happened before. Just like with the COVID virus, do you know how much we have relied on data and statistics whenever it has came to getting information on how to deal with that. We relied on history to do that. And so that's why it's very important. And tell folks, you you could be anything you want to be. And if you limit yourself to what someone else tells you, or if they say, hey, you can't do this because you're that, or you can't do this because uh, you're a prey, or whatever the case may be, when in reality, you're teaching children to hate one another because you're not born that way. You're not born racist. You're not born to hate one another. That is something that is instilled in you. You know, you have to be taught that just like a dog. When a dog is a puppy, you know, it's just like a kid. You can raise that dog to be either mean or nice either way. But whatever you do, that's how it's going to be when it gets older. So you, you don't sit here and take children when, you know, the brain studies have shown that it doesn't fully develop until around the age 25. So whenever you're teaching this stuff, to these children, you are literally teaching them how to hate one another instead of how to love one another. 
Exactly. Yes, you couldn't be more right about that. Uh, and it, it's it's very sad. Um, Dr. Ben Carson has said of critical race theory that it's neo-Marxist in theory mm-hmm. and neo-Jim Crow in practice. Yes. Meaning meaning that it is racist. Yes. It is a Marxist racist theory and it violates the Civil Rights Act and it it should be illegal. And I and that's why our state legislature is looking at at ways of um prohibiting it in the classroom. But you know in, in K-12 it looks a little different. So there was a lady named Gloria Ladson Billings, who is a big proponent of critical race theory. Yeah. And back in the 90s, she created something called culturally relevant pedagogy. And this was uh, her version of critical race theory that was intended for K-12 education. So that's one of the names that you'll see it under in K-12 schools. And in the school district in Kershaw County, where I live, um, they hired a woman from the USC College of Education. Her name is Dr. Gloria Boutte. Okay. And she wrote a book that talks about culturally responsive pedagogy. And it shows, you know, graphs of, um, you know, the, the oppressors versus the oppressed and all of that. So it's so obviously the same thing as critical race theory, but it's just under a different name. And, you know, in that list of oppressed and oppressors, they also listed Christians as being oppressors. So it's this culturally relevant pedagogy um, also puts shame and and burden for oppression on Christians. Interesting. Um, Yes. And so then other groups that are oppressed are uh, LGBTQ, so it's it's broader in in the realm. So the the people that are and so another term they use is privileged. Mm-hmm. So the people that are privileged are whites, particularly males, and Christians, and everybody else falls in the oppressed category. Um, so anyway, as you can see, it's a very unhealthy mindset. It's um, it's also coming into the schools through professional development. We've found evidence of the. State Department of Education sponsoring, um, you know, teacher training for, um, you know, for credit. They, they need to continue their educational credits. We've seen the South Carolina Education Association also pushing some courses like that. And so then, it you know, it's coming in through training teachers. It's coming in through social emotional learning which is a whole nother topic, but it's, it's become a vehicle for teaching um, these critical theories. And um, so that's how we've been able to unveil these things and show the evidence to uh, communities that this is, this is what's being taught in their schools. You know, and the other part of it is just the anti-Americanism uh, in, in, in these schools is, is really become um it's it's the focus you know that we're a bad country and we're bad people and yeah. you know we 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 hurt the indigenous people of the country and um history is just being taught in a way that we shouldn't be surprised that young people in one of the past presidential elections uh were overwhelmingly in favor of bernie sanders who's a, a self-proclaimed socialist because well, they're being taught that even communism is cool I tell and those so, people to go to another country 
Okay. A third world. I mean, I'm, I'm dead serious, you know, uh, because unless you have traveled to places like that and you have seen, you, you know, the way that these folks live, the rights that they have, it's just, it will break your heart literally. And you will sit there and you will kiss the ground when you hit American soil and you will have a different perspective. So a lot of these people that are sitting here saying America's bad, all this and that, I can guarantee you none of them that are saying that maybe a couple, but they have never stepped foot off the United States soil and went to somewhere else. Well, that's the reason that people flock to get into our country exactly legally or illegally. It's not because we're a bad country. It's because we are the land of opportunity, the greatest nation in the world, not the perfect, but the greatest. Yes. An exceptional nation. Yep. And that's what children need to be taught. They need to be. Now I'm not saying you don't teach them anything bad. Like you said a moment ago, you have to learn from history. You do. The and good and ma- the bad. That's right. We've made mistakes, but there, there's no reason to teach children not to love their country. There's no other country in the world that teaches their children not to love their country, that's to right. be anti their country. And, um, so anyway, that's that's a big part of my platform, and that's why uh, symbolically, every time you see me, whether I'm doing Facebook Live or I'm at an event, you're going to see me wearing uh, the American flag, either on a scarf or a piece of jewelry or something, because that symbolizes my commitment to return patriotism to South Carolina students. Well, let me and ask so- you this. So speaking of that... <clears throat> How do you feel about the American flag and the state flag, along with our motto, in every school in South Carolina? I feel very good about it. And it should be allowed. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's uh, it's a part of our patriotic history, you know, pledging to the flag. And I know some some schools, they, they, they don't do the pledge anymore. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that uh, that upsets me um, because they, they should, you know, just like prayer. Uh, I've always said this. The moment that they took, you know, God out of schools, it opened the door to let the devil come in and look what, right. and look what we see now. Oh, yeah. So well, you, with your well, faith, you know, go ahead. At, you, with your faith as a Christian, you know, but just in general, because um, when they took it out. So how would you feel? Or what would be your thoughts on having the morning prayer instead of a moment of silence? Oh, I, I believe that um, faith should be a part of education. You know, I, in fact, if I had it to do over again, I probably would have put my children in a Christian school. Uh, I didn't know any better at the time as, as a young mother. But even um, my oldest son, walked away from his faith because of what he learned in school. He's admitted that to me that, you know, the science he was taught uh, caused him to doubt the creation story. And if that wasn't true, then what else could he believe? Yeah. And, um, you know, there's, there's other theories in, in early on in South Carolina parents involved in education, we were pushing for um, intelligent design, scientific theory to be taught in classrooms alongside of evolution. So we're not suggesting that, you know, you don't teach both sides, but that's what's happening now is children are taught that they evolved from apes as a fact. And it is simply a theory and they won't allow any other theories in the classroom. The intelligent design theory 
and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's it's uh, it talks about all of the science that supports the biological complexity of a human, and that um, our our bodies and brains operate like a computer, mm-hmm. and it's far too technical, way too technical. to have to have been happenstance. That That's it right. had to have had an intelligent designer. And so and we know from that, the that is God. That is God. That is God. I tell yes, people, that's right. you know, our brain is literally the best computer ever built, you know, and mm-hmm. it sits there. And to have something like that, uh, I mean, when God God designed these bodies, you know, um, everyone can have their own theory. This is mine. And I, I believe in God. I know I know Jesus is real. I know God is real. And when you sit there and you think about how our bodies are designed and how it correlates with um, things around the universe, you take the shape of your earlobe, for example, and compare it to the Milky Way galaxy, compare it to a hurricane, compare it to the inner side of a seashell. They're all related to one another. You know, that wasn't done by evolution. That was done by flawless design. And that was from God. Amen. So, yeah. So uh, another good thing that we can do uh, for students in public school is a program called Release Time Education. And we have some of that uh, already happening in our state. And and the national headquarters for Release Time Education, I just learned, is actually in South Carolina. I met a woman who works for them Mm -hmm. at a recent event. So Release Time Education is a program where students can choose as an elective to leave the campus to go to a local church and uh, receive credit for an elective in Christian education in Bible studies. And that's so, what the release time education is all about? Yes, that's what it is. And it's perfectly legal. And like I said, it's happening in some schools in our state. Mm-hmm. And uh, should I be elected superintendent of education? I plan to do all I can to expand that and make it accessible to Interesting. Interesting. I think that's actually a great idea. I mean, I I truly do. So speaking of curriculums and things like that, so you know there's the ESA, and then there's this PACE uh, program that has went back to 1997, uh, and it's proven on paper to be one of the most effective forms of, of education there is. And so how do you sit, where do you stand when it comes to ESA and then the PACE program? Okay, so ESA stands for Education Savings Accounts, Mm -hmm. and it's sort of been a national trend for a few years now, but especially um, because of COVID, you know, um, school choice is on the radar in nearly every state legislature, and many states are looking at education savings accounts. So our national nonprofit organization, uh, we have a, a political arm called USPI Action, and we, we have written position statements on school choice. In the past, we never supported any school choice program um, because of the fact that it's uh, putting government money into public, uh, excuse me, private and Christian schools, and it could actually do harm to them because government money never comes without strings attached. And even if it looks good in the beginning, the money could go into the schools, they would become dependent on it, and then they could uh, ramp up the regulations and take control, basically, of private and Christian schools. So we believe that school choice programs like the education savings accounts 
it's really a voucher program, uh, are not healthy for private and Christian schools. And that's why we do not support that school choice option. However, um, and, and we've always, our position has always been that we would like to see a school choice option for parents that is extremely simple, a check the box type uh, program like the um, child tax credit that you have that you receive on your federal income tax return. Yeah. So you just check the box and say I have X number of children and you claim the credit. So we're, we support, we have in the past, you know, that's been the only type of school choice option we would support. Um, so then recently we became familiar with the PACE scholarship. And like you said, it's, it's um, actually legislation that we've been approached about a, a couple of years ago to support. And we couldn't support it at that time because it had too many mandates. It had the, the biggest mandate we objected to was mandatory testing. So the problem with mandatory testing is the tests are aligned with the standards and the standards we have, as I explained earlier, are common core. Uh, it's been proven that the standards that are in place are 90% aligned with common core. So that means the tests are aligned with it. So you could um, choose a different school, but if you have to be tested on those common core aligned standards, then you're gonna have to teach to the test. And so that's why we objected to that a few years ago. Uh, but based on our input, the drafters of the legislation uh, revised it and came up with the bill this year that it has far less regulations and they removed the testing requirement. So our leadership team reviewed the PACE legislation uh -huh. and through our U.S. Pi Action um, affiliate, we have actually endorsed that legislation and we're looking at using it and tweaking it somewhat and providing it uh, around the country as an alternative, an alternative to the voucher government funded, government controlled uh, school choice options. Perfect, so, so, so you have endorsed the Pay Scholarship Program and that's gonna be S903 or H4772. That's correct. Gotcha, that's awesome, that is. And that right there would eliminate the um, federal government is what you're saying. It would it would eliminate any government involvement, mm -hmm. even the state. So so the money goes. So um, businesses or in, individuals donate to scholarship granting organizations, and then parents apply to those organizations for funding um, for the private school of their choice. So government's not involved whatsoever. Yeah, and I see where, it, yeah, it's privately funded, 100% tax donor, credit funded, independent nonprofits have to raise the funds mm -hmm. where you have the ESA that is 100% government funded, government tax dollars given to the program, which ultimately, like you said, anytime the government gives you something, there's there's always a string attached. I mean, just like the stimulus checks and all this and that, you know, they say what you want. You can't just constantly print money out and expect that, okay, there's not going to be repercussions. You know, this is stuff that my grandchildren will be paying off. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a touchy subject, you know, um, but we have to you know, the, the bureaucrats, like they, they, they shouldn't be allowed to run our system. <clears throat> and when I say that, 
you know, these are our children. We're sending them to school because we want them to learn. And again, I have three that are homeschooled. My oldest daughter graduates in a couple months. And so it's my son's been homeschooled from day one. And my two daughters, they just begin and began homeschool a couple years ago, say around 2019, the beginning of 2019. So uh, it's very important when it comes to school choice like that, that we know the options. We know where our money's going, all this and that, because um, isn't our money sent to Florida? They take 5% and then send it back here to the state. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a scam, uh, the way our tax dollars are spent. You know, we send our money to the feds, you know, the taxpayers of our state. Mm-hmm. You know, we have federal taxes that we pay. So it goes to, I don't know about Florida, but it goes to Washington, D.C. And then it's shifted through all the bureaucracy and, you know, uh, sifted money off. And then a portion of it, a small portion of it that's left is sent back to us by the federal government right. with strings attached. And and so that's another very big part of my platform that I don't think any of the other candidates are talking about. but the funny thing is when I say things, then they start talking about it. So it could come up in the future, uh, but that's okay. They say the best form of flattery is when somebody copies you, but, but, and that's the thing I've been trying to tell voters too, is that these candidates are all going to say they're against critical race theory. They're against masking, you know, all of the things that I have been volunteering my time to fight mm-hmm. and have been doing for 20 years. Now, all of a sudden, these candidates are going to say they're against these things, but look at what they have done. You know, what have they done? So when it comes to um, the federal money and the federal involvement in our classrooms, that's a part of our mission with United States Parents Involved in Education. You know, we we understand that only about 10 percent of a state's education budget comes from the federal government. So 10 percent, while it sounds small in percentage, it's, it's still a large amount of money, but they control 100% of the classroom. That's right. And that's where we're getting all of these nefarious pedagogies is they're being forced on our states for you to take the money. So we were talking about the COVID money earlier and the last round, the ESSER 3, you mm-hmm. know, requiring that you advance equity and inclusion. So that's how they're um, forcing school districts. They, they just lavish them with money and say, okay, you can have this money, but you have to do this. So in South Carolina, what I plan to do as superintendent of education is we're going to do a cost of compliance study where we're going to analyze what it costs for our state to comply with federal regulations, because you have to hire staff to do the paperwork and the reporting. And, you know, there's a lot of costs that go into it. So in, if we are able to do that, and report to the legislature that even of the 10%, perhaps we're only netting three or 4%. And so then it's a much smaller dollar value. And then we will encourage our state to begin to wean ourselves off of the federal dole so that we can regain control of our classrooms. So saying that, if you were elected, how long do you think it would take for you to get this under control and eliminate the federal government from our school systems here in South Carolina? 
Well, I would work as aggressively as I could on it. Um, I would hope that South Carolina could set a precedent for other states. And that's part of our mission, too, with with US Pi mm-hmm. is we are we are going to work with a few states to do this kind of a cost compliance, cost of compliance. Florida is one of the states we're looking at because, you know, Governor DeSantis has just been so bold and it just seems like a good fit. Yeah. So if we can get a few states to to show um, that it is possible to wean ourselves off. There, there's also going to have to be um, some sort of changes to how our tax dollars um, are going to, to D.C. If we're not going to receive I money agree. from them, then we shouldn't have to send as much money to them. So exactly there's right. some technical pieces that would need to be worked out. And obviously, uh, I would have to have the support of the legislature. It's not something that I could do as superintendent. But I can do the study to show them and I can use the office as my bully pulpit. And if I run on these issues and I'm elected, I can remind the legislature that this is a mandate from the voters. That's right. And and so we would work collaboratively to and I don't think it could all happen, you know, all at one time. I think it would need to be a gradual wean, but we can gradually wean ourselves off. You know, there's some programs that people would probably um, say like uh, the, the free free and reduced lunch, the um, special needs dollars, you know, that's kind of the pushback that people say, well, we need that money when we talk about this issue, but we need to look at the state funding those programs themselves. And, and you know, that's where, again, you know, we shouldn't be sending so much of our tax dollars to DC if we're not gonna take any money, keep that money within our state, and do these programs ourselves. And and probably what we'll see is that we can do it far more efficiently when we do it within our state. So it, it could take time, um, but it, it will be one of my, it is one of my top three priorities um, to pursue this. And, and that will unshackle us from these, like I said earlier, nefarious pedagogies that are being pushed on states like Common Core and and now critical race theory. And, and, uh, what do you think about, uh, so I heard, <clears throat> excuse me, I heard a preschool teacher for, yeah, for pre four is what she was doing. And, uh, she was teaching the students about being, she was teaching the boys how to be girls, the girls, how to be boys, and all this and that, and then went on to be excited about it. And, you know, she put a video out and it was like, oh, hey, yeah. So, you know, a week later, there was a boy sitting at the table and he was dressed up as a girl and he told his teacher, oh, hey, I want to be a girl today. So, again, like we touched on earlier, the brain isn't developed until fully developed until you're around 25 years old. So to me, what it seems like is they're being brainwashed in the system right here. And whenever someone allows anybody, first off, you shouldn't be teaching, you know, kids that are four, five, six, seven, eight. Now, you shouldn't be teaching them about, you know, oh, you can change your gender. If you don't want to be a boy, you can turn into a girl like it to my to, to me. That is ludicrous. And I can't believe that it's actually happening in the United States, you know, and that's something that we have to get a grip on. And when I heard that, like it made my stomach turn. I'm like, I mean, cause she was all excited and 
I'm like, are you serious right now? That four-year-old child doesn't stand a chance because they're going to ultimately spend more time at school than they will at home when school's in session. Okay. Parents work, they come home, they pick the kids up, you know, they do the homework, all this and that, then boom, they go back to school. So there, we have to get a grip on that. And if you were to find out that this is being done in the schools in South Carolina, would you allow that to happen? Well, I, I, I am totally against what I call the sexualization of children. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of things fall under that. There's the very um, insidious, comprehensive sexuality education. And we've had a law in our state for uh, since 1988 that really protected children from uh, the law said specifically that you could not teach about alternative sexual lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't know that in 2020, uh, three LGBT groups sued Molly Spearman uh, for that piece of that law, and a federal court overturned it and removed that portion of our law. And Molly, of course, did not appeal it. So it's kind of left the door wide open for all this LGBT stuff that we're seeing in our schools now. Now, the, the issue that you brought up specifically, which is gender neutrality I exactly think right it. yep yep that's it yeah that's it. so i'm i'm totally against that it has no place in the classroom uh those issues anything in in the realm of sex whether it's gender or sexuality that belongs in the home that is a parent's purview to teach to their children so it's it is i think you called it brainwashing i call it, it indoctrination yeah, yeah i call it indoctrination my my the theme of my campaign is education, not indoctrination. Yeah. Because all of these issues fall under indoctrination. Uh, yeah, and, it does. It does because uh, again, it's 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 a form of taking you know all these uh, extreme theorists and then placing them on the children, and they don't know how to interpret that. All they know is every day they come in here and they're being taught the same thing over and over. So it's just, it's going to be muscle memory repetitions. Like it, it's going to be stuck in their head. And then now we have to figure out how to get a grip on it. And I want everyone that's listening to know, you know, you can be what you want to be. I don't care. I don't care. That's your God given right. You know, but there's a time and a place and our school system is not the place for that to be taught. You know, it, it just mm -hmm. isn't. And, and it's unacceptable. So I will always be against it again. You know, if you if you know you want to LGBT, you know, whatever the case may be to each his own rock out, do what you want to do. But it don't need to be in our school system. It don't need to be taught. We don't need to try to cover it up with this word or that word and make it seem like it's something when we all really know what it is. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's, it's not acceptable. And, you know, I had um, the Moms for Liberty chapter, you know, court in Lexington, Courtney O'Hara. She sat there and she said, you know, this is the year of the parent. That's what we've been saying. And it's true. You know, parents are waking up and they're seeing this stuff. And a lot of them are just flabbergasted. They're, they're floored. Like, wow, I, I can't believe I've been so blind to this. You know, how did I not know this? So it, that's why it's important yeah. that we get these messages out there and we let these people know what is what, you know, what your kids are being taught. And I yeah. mean, if it's, it should be at the top of your priority list, you know, whenever you're a parent 
to know what is going on in the classroom. Same thing with bullying and stuff like that. Um, again, and I sit there and say that we need to hold the superintendents of our county schools over. I mean, we, we need to hold them responsible. Yes, yes, they need to be held accountable for sure. So, yeah, and another thing that I've been doing over the last 18 months through uh, United States Parents Involved in Education is we are um, producing a documentary. And the name of the documentary is Truth and Lies in Education, mm -hmm. Truth and Lies in American Education. And one of the ladies that we interview is a lawyer who has represented several families that have suffered under this general uh, gender neutrality uh, um, issue. So, for example, one of her clients was um, the parents of a six-year-old girl who was raped in the bathroom, the gender-neutral bathroom oh, by yes. a, a classmate. Yes, and and so she, in our in our interview, she talks about uh, children that are being given. Um, medical treatments, mm -hmm. uh, hormone therapies, and uh, without parental consent. And see, that's that. That's first off, it's unethical. It's illegal. It's unconstitutional. Like, are you serious? And that's why I tell you, parents that are listening, and I know we have a lot of them. You know, you guys really need to wake up and pay attention because this is what's going on, and it's only going to yeah. get worse if it's not stopped. So wake yes. up, wake up. Yes. So one other thing um, that's in my platform that you might be interested in knowing as far as um, parents and taxpayers having uh, more accountability, not accountability, but the uh, elected officials being held accountable to parents and taxpayers is our education system is set up with you have the state department of education, which the state superintendent leads. That's right. And then you have the state board of education which is a 16, I think 16 member board that is politically appointed by the legislature and, and not, so you can't even really hold um, the state board accountable because it's not one particular legislator, but it's legislative delegations. So it's hard to find, you know, any way for accountability with the state board of education decisions. And then we have the education oversight committee, which is also a politically appointed um, government agency mm -hmm. and they are they have quite a bit of authority and are supposed to oversee the two big education laws in their implementation in our state and by the way my opponent alan weaver is the chairman of the education oversight committee so i i've been critical of the fact that she is on one of the most powerful education uh government agencies in our state and yet all of a sudden she thinks critical race theory is a problem. Well, she's been on that committee since 2016. So do you and think so, that that's just something that she's doing? Because a lot of, I've heard a lot of talk about candidates coming out recently with these platforms, whenever they've mm -hmm. been in a position, you know, to do something for years. Right. And, you know, this isn't, I'm just saying this to everyone. Uh, so it's no one in particular, but I'm just sitting here stating the obvious that uh, it seems like when certain issues become, you know, real hot topics, then right. people want to jump on that train. And it's like, OK, right. well, where's your track record to say that exactly. you have opposed this from day one? Don't start right. don't start opposing it whenever it becomes a hot topic. And it, it's like, oh, man, this is what people are talking about. You know, CRT, right. uh, you, you know, mm -hmm. this scholarship that it just 
why jump on that train? Or if you do jump on that train, be prepared to show your track record. That way we can say, okay, you've been doing this since when? And uh, so, so like, like yourself, for example, you said 2014, right? <clears throat> so you've been, you've been advocating for change for this stuff since 2014, correct? Well, 2014 is when I ran for state superintendent mm -hmm. of education, but I've actually been advocating for parental authority and education since 2000. I mean, for 20 years I've been doing this. Mm -hmm. And that's why I took you all the way back to when my kids were in middle school, when we fought the sex education standards. That's when we started uh, South Carolina Parents Involved in Education. So that's how far back my track record goes on fighting these issues. And so every other person in the race is a part of the system. I'm the only candidate that's not a part of the system. We have two, uh, the two largest school districts in the state. We have a Greenville County um, uh, school board uh, member and a Charleston County school board member in the race. Mm -hmm. We have Ellen Weaver, who's the chair of the Education Oversight Committee. And we have um, Karen Manis, who's the president of the Teachers Association. Mm -hmm. And so those they've had an opportunity to do something. And, and, oh, of course, Kizzy, of course, is a teacher for 18 years. Yep. Do you so think that that gives them like a little bit of maybe um, an upper hand because they, they see stuff like that and being um, in the classroom? Do you think that helps them or, or, or is it no, a, what, a hindrance? Well, well, what I'm saying is they've been a part of the system and I don't see any record of them taking any action, being outspoken. But because, yes, they're closer to these issues than you and I are, mm -hmm. and parents. I mean, parents have a, a very hard time even accessing what their children are learning, but these people know firsthand. And and so I bring it up again because uh, the voters really need to, to ask and see, what have you done? You know, critical race theory, what have you done? Common core, what have you done? So um, yeah, that Kizzy, common core is isn't ludicrous. Seriously, I sat there and you know was watching my son the other day, and again, you know they're homeschooled, but it's considered public school, so it's an online public school, is what it is. South Carolina Connections Academy, and mm -hmm. uh, they and they've been they've been phenomenal. But you know when I was sitting there, he was doing math, and yeah. he, they were doing percentages, you know, adding sales taxes or whatever. And so I sat there and I heard him, and I was like, okay, great. You know, I, I had a hundred percent in in math. That's one of the things I love. You know, science, social studies, math, history. That's that was me. And so I say, oh, son, you know, do it like this. And bam, there's your answer. And then my wife steps in and said, no, he can't do it like that. And I'm like, why can't he? Because that I mean, that's the answer. And plus, it's it didn't take but, you know, like 30 seconds to do. And she said, no, it has to be done like this. And there were so many extra steps that it was completely unnecessary, like they didn't need to be there. It, it serious it, is instead of going, I mean, they, you know, the fastest way to an op is, is, is a straight line, not a curve. And they're throwing in a curve to get these answers. And it's like, why? Because you're stressing these kids out. You're overcomplicating things. And then whenever you want to have their brain fully functional, like cursive writing, for example, that was taken out of the schools. And, and it's like, why would you do that whenever you have to sit there and sign a check, whenever you have to fill out a college application, an apartment lease, uh, a car loan, whatever the case may be, you have to sign your name. Not print it, but sign it. They don't even teach that. And for those of you listening, anyone 
that cursive writing, for example, it, it taps into the part of your brain that has the artistic side to it. So it's not only teaching someone how to write in cursive, but it's keeping that part of your brain sharp and alive and firing. So whenever you get these artistic things, it, your brain is more receptive to, to receiving them and responding in a better way. And whenever you have this common core stuff and you're, you're seriously having to go around in circles when you can just go in a straight line, to me, it's mind boggling. And, and I, I couldn't, I, it was just, it floored me. And when I saw what he had to write again, it didn't make no sense, not to me. And, and it still won't. So I'm not a fan of that at all. And I'll let everyone know that not a fan of it at all. Well, what's interesting, um, and I'm actually going to be doing a Facebook Live about this, is that the the ELA, so that's the English Language Arts that's Standards, right. mm -hmm. and Math were, were the two common core subjects. So ELA is has come up for what they call a cyclical review, and we're checking into the math, but the um, Department of Education had a team of writers working on the ELA standards this past summer, and they're supposed to come before the state board and the EOC uh, this year for approval. So then we're talking about Common Core. So it will be interesting to see what Ellen Weaver will do as chairman of the EOC. Will she slap down what's handed to her if it's more Common Core? Or will she be bold enough to make a difference because she is in a position to make a difference? She is. Although, I agree. Although she tells voters that the only thing the EOC is, is like a scale. It's like you go on a diet. It tells you how much you weigh. So she says that's the only function of the EOC is to uh, provide data and measurements to the parents and to the General Assembly, which that is one function of the EOC. And it has much broader purview than that. So it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier with our structure of education organizations. And mm -hmm. what I'm recommending and what I will um, again, use my bully pulpit for is I'm I'm going to recommend that we eliminate the Education Oversight Committee and we have the State Board of Education elected by the citizens of the state rather than being politically appointed. So there can be some accountability. Now, that's a, a, I a little like bit of that idea, Sherry, whenever you yeah, just said we, I, like, I do, because that gives that gives the parents a chance to to be involved and to actually pick based off track records yes. and things like that and not, yes. and not an appointed. I, I like that idea. That's very smart. Yes. I like that. It's, it's, it's about accountability and, and, and many States do it that way. And it's, it's going to be a little trickier than just uh, a piece of legislation because it is uh, laid out in our state constitution. Um, the way that we, uh, you know, establish our state board. Mm -hmm. So it will take a referendum to the voters and then the voters will decide whether to change our constitution and have the state board elected. I believe that parents and taxpayers will want that referendum. So it will be a matter of me using my bully pulpit to influence the legislature to put that question on the ballot. Yeah. So let me ask you that when we talk about money and things like that in the school systems, because I'm going to use my county. I'm from Fairfield County and uh, my office is down here in Columbia and so whenever I look at the money that some of these superintendents make, it blows my mind. I mean, seriously, whenever you're making over $100,000 a year and the schools and accolades doesn't match up and you, the teacher salary, the teacher pay, like it doesn't match up. 
So how do you feel about these people that hold these positions on a local level making over $100,000, some 200000 if you count incentives and bonuses and things like that. But yet mm -hmm. our, our teachers have to buy materials for their schools. They have to send letters home to say, hey, you know, uh, your child needs X, Y, and Z. And it's like, why do I need to buy one for the whole class? With that, though, it's it frustrates me because I seriously, I see our money going to the superintendent and not the school. So just like that COVID money throughout throughout the entire nation, $190 billion B with a billion. I mean, that's just mind boggling. And then I know South Carolina's got some. And I was just looking over the graph about two weeks ago to see how it was being distributed and all this and that. And if I'm not mistaken, another check is fixing to be released. So where is that money going? I mean, the preparations, this is where the accountability comes in. And I don't think, I think it needs to be a full scale audit in every single school district and they need to find out. I mean, I know in Fairfield, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but we had a lot of issues going on with our school board members and, and everything years ago where they were just sitting there and they were, they were taking money for their clothing, for cell phones, for trips. Mm -hmm. And yet we have our teachers struggling and that, that is the backbone. Again, those teachers are raising you know, uh, our, our future president, our doctors, our nurses, our astronauts, our entrepreneurs. And it's just like, should they be making that much money and the teachers not? Well, I believe that school districts are very bloated and the in administrative level salaries are, are high and not enough money gets to the classroom. I totally agree with that. So how do we fix it? Well, so, you know, it's difficult to balance with my uh, position on local control. So, you know, the State Department, um, I don't believe, should be mandating or directing uh, things that need to be decided on the local level. But what I would do as superintendent of education is I would provide support to local school boards. And, and I think local school boards need uh, an alternative training. So there's a law in our state that if you get elected to a local school board, you have to go to a training approved by the State Department of Education. Mm -hmm. And, and the training, uh, I believe the State Department does. So taxpayers? Yes. Okay. Of I mean, course. yeah, yeah that, that, that's what yeah. it boils down to. Yeah. So right now, um, it's a very liberal training that's recommended by the State Department of Education. And it's it's always been, you know, like a, a monopoly on that training. So school board members are indoctrinated before they even start their job. And, mm -hmm. and they're, they're sort of told that they're limited in, in their authority. And, and there's, there's now an alternative to that training. There is a good conservative based training that's available. A friend of mine in Ohio has been doing it in her state uh, for several years and she's expanding nationally because there's such an outcry for an alternative to the liberal school board trainings. So the idea, you know, that I've been promoting even before I decided to run for superintendent is for parents to take over their school boards. And so once they're elected and they have the majority, then they, with the proper training, they can pursue these things, these, these problems that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. They can do audits. They, they can fire their superintendent. And hire somebody new and they absolutely decide their salaries yeah so so that's that would be my solution is um 
to use the authority that I have to um, approve of an alternative to the liberal training mm-hmm. and to provide support to school districts that have the right vision. And if the, so money, like, if the money isn't matching up, like, I mean, so you are in agreement that superintendents shouldn't be making, you know, $100,000 a year. Some, well, I, some close to $200,000 a year. And if right. you look at the success rate with how many kids graduate, you know, right. the, 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 the pay scale per capita, stuff like that, it's just, it does yeah. not add up whenever you're looking at what you're producing versus mm-hmm. what is being paid to you salary wise, right. incentive wise, bonuses wise, it does not match. And you're like, wow, you know, you are literally making more money than all your principals combined. Like I, to me, I think that's a problem because they're, they're not the ones now. And trust me as a businessman, I own several. So I'm constantly in and out of meetings, doing this, interviews, uh, whatever the case may be. So I get that there are, you know, there's work to be done. There's meetings. There's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know about. So I can understand a very fair salary, but to sit there and top, you know, a hundred thousand, close to 200,000, some at 220. $220,000 a year Mm -hmm. after you add in all the incentives and all the bonuses, it's just, it blows my mind. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. there are teachers struggling. Some of them, you know, they, they, they can't even get the proper stuff that they need for their classroom. Then it goes back to my previous statement about the money that the state has received for COVID. And it's just like, where did that go? Where did they go? Because I haven't seen any improvements. I haven't, haven't seen none. And I haven't visited every school in the state. I can just tell you for the schools that I have visited, I haven't seen any. So it's it right. it, it, it is very frustrating. And we definitely as parents, you know, want answers. Parents, taxpayers, whether it's your niece in school. I mean, you may not have kids, but you pay taxes. Yes. And that's that's what I tell citizens when when we do presentations. You know, a lot of times the room would be half full of um, people my age that don't have kids in school. But I tell them, uh, you are a stakeholder because you are funding this. And ultimately, as far as stakeholders go, we're, I'm fighting for our country's freedom, for mm-hmm. preserving our country's constitutional republic, because that's what's on the line here. And that's why every citizen needs to be alarmed at what's being taught. And they need to fight to stop it by electing somebody like me to state superintendent of education. Because if we don't stop the indoctrination, we are going to lose our constitutional republic. And that's why I'm so passionate about this. Now, I agree with you about the pay um, and, you know, the money not getting to the classroom. And so, you know, a good alternative, I think, and I think what I hear you saying is that they, they should have merit-based pay. So if you're if your school district's doing really well, then maybe there'll be some bonus and or incentive in there for you. There you go. To 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 show results because as you and I know in the in the private business world, um, you have to turn a profit, uh, and and you only do that when you do a good job. Mm-hmm. When you're good at what you do, That's nobody's right. going to buy your services if you're not good. Exactly. You can't show that you can produce a good product. So I, I agree with you 100% on that. Um, and again, I just think that it's such an important, such an important time in our nation's history to get this right. And that's why I hope that your listeners will go to my website, which is 
Sherry, spelled S-H-E-R-I, 22.com. And they can learn more about my platform. There's a lot of detail there. They can sign up to stay informed about the campaign. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, if they like what they hear and what they see, they can donate to the campaign because I'm up against big bucks uh, with Ellen Weaver. She raised um, $125,000 in three months. So I've, I've got to beef up my coffers and I need mama bears all over the state donating what they can to my campaign. And and fathers, you know, I don't think we get enough credit. I, <laughs> I, I seriously don't because you, you know, are right. I, I know. I mean, like myself, for example, uh, father of four and uh, been there from day one, you know, and I know other I know single single fathers like they and they raise their children. And, mm-hmm. you know, they don't get that. They don't get the credit that they that they should. And it's always like dads are looked at, you know, as as just whatever because they didn't birth the child and uh yeah that's something we we have to include our fathers because they're a major backbone and again having a father in 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 a child's life or having a male period in a child's life is is detrimental to to a lot of their success because you know having the mom they're going to help and do certain things but again you know if you're raising a boy he's going to need a male in his life for certain things you know girls they they look up to their father and their mother mm-hmm. too, but it's it's very important that that you know everyone gets involved. Mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, grandparents. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I know that that are grandparents that are raising children, and it's sad because first off, you know what leads to that, and you know how to prevent that, but you choose to 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 have kids and and let other people raise them. Which again, mm-hmm. with technology these days, it's it's hard for a lot of these people to keep up with what's going on and and we have some of the issues we have. And so that's like bullying, you know, bullying in schools, uh, whether it's online or whatever the case may be, it's unacceptable and it's allowed to happen. You know, if we was to have a debate, which debates was pulled from school, I don't understand why, because that was literally one of the, like, I would always be at school every day. You know, I was, I wasn't uh, a perfect child. I'll tell you that. And so I was in and out. And needless to say, if there was a debate that day, I was at school. I was there guaranteed all day. And now you can't even do it because there has been so much rhetoric towards, oh, you know, if you're a Republican, you, you, you're you a racist. Or if you're a Democrat, you hate America and you do this and you do that. So it's like quit all of that, you know, like stop all of that, because, again, it's just division. It's division. You know, so we was just talking about math. You know, you minus those two out of the equation. And you get unity. That would be your equal. So having a debate, you can't have a debate. You can't have a Democratic or Republican debate in school right now. You know why? Because it's being taught that Republicans are racist and all this and that. And and vice versa. The left is, you know, all these uh, crazy things. And so. By doing all that, they would be jumped on. They would be beat. They would be attacked. They would be bullied. And it's allowed to happen from what I've seen. And there's, I mean, there's no answers for it. And that's when, again, it gets to a local level because you would think the superintendents would get up and they would say something. But no, they, they, they don't. They sit there. They collect that big, nice check and they keep rolling. So it seems like they're more money driven than they are you know, worried about the the success of these little children 
that are being taught in these schools. It's not about the money and it never should be. It never should be. The money is just an added bonus, I guess you would say. That's how I feel. You know, when you're going to take the time out to teach someone or to lead someone, money shouldn't be a factor because if you're in it for the money, you're in it for the wrong thing. And I tell people that all the time. You can't be in it for the money. Some people can, again, to each his own, but you will not be able to put your full potential to use because you're sitting there focused on the money and not the problem, not the education, not the success, none of that, because you're worried about the money. Well, I agree. It's, um, you know, I, I believe that I'm called at this time to help heal our education system, as well as the divisiveness in our country. And so that's one of the things that's motivated me to run. And, you know, education is a huge uh, industry, mm -hmm. a huge money-making industry. Mm -hmm. It's, I think it's number two in our state budget uh, behind health. And um, that's right. It's, you know, it was the Bible tells the root of all evil is the love of money. Exactly. And right. a lot of people are making a lot of money off of education. You know, Bill Gates is pushed. Um, yeah. I don't like Bill Gates. On, online on the record saying so, that virtual learning and you know they're just they're they're making all sorts of money now uh there's no more textbooks you know parents can't even see what their children are learning because everything's online and you can't even access what they're learning that's right and your parents have been doing freedom of information requests uh, I'm, I'm affiliated with several parents who have asked for documents through the freedom of information act and they're being told they have to pay hundreds and even thousands of dollars to get these documents mm. and and there should be there should be far more access not only for parents but for the community everything should be available you know i mean and this might sound extreme but i'm beginning to wonder if we don't need cameras in the classroom why shouldn't parents be able to tune in and see what's happening in the classroom if, if there's nothing they're doing wrong, then they shouldn't have anything to hide. They shouldn't mind. That's very interesting. Because in. I'm going to tell you something. All right. Because I, I, I've never thought about that until you just said something. But with the first thing that popped in my mind, there's cameras everywhere inside the school, right? Mm -hmm. There's cameras outside the school, right? School buses have them. Exactly. So why wouldn't that? That's a good idea. Why wouldn't they be in the classroom? Mm -hmm. Therefore, you can have first off a live feed but if you needed to review if there was an incident if there was a fight if there was whatever you can review that right then and there mm -hmm. sit back pull the record boom 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 there's your proof either it happened or it didn't happen that's yep. not a bad that's not a bad idea it's not a bad idea so yeah very interesting that's the first time i've thought about that i'm glad you brought that up well, I appreciate you having me on today. We've gone kind of long. I don't know how, how long your listeners will tolerate, but we've had a really good conversation. We have. I've been, we have. I've been able to cover most of my platform, but again, I mm -hmm. encourage people to go to my website to learn more. Well, and all the information, we will have it linked on here. So any kind mm -hmm. of the websites, anything like that, we'll put all your links, all your social media contact, all that will be in here. So every time... And, you know, 
guys, you know, we stream on, you know, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Rambox, Facebook Podcasts. So there are so many different ways to get it. Uh, the South Carolina Federation of Republican Men's website. So, yeah, there's multiple ways that they can stream in here and we'll have all this and that good to go. And uh, yeah, so it's going to be it's going to be interesting. And there were um, there were two more things that I wanted to, to talk to or just get your get your answer on. And I know, okay. you know we have ran about 16 minutes over our scheduled time, which is good, though. Uh, so <laughs> we're sitting there and. I know that this is going to come up so that way we can get it out the way. But do you think that that whole uh, embezzlement is going to come out and like people are going to try to use that against you? I know you've made your statement and you've, you know, you, you've put that out there. What is, but, wait a minute. What are we talking about here? Uh, with some 2014 with the campaign where there was accusations about misuse of funds and all this and that. And Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Well, see, let me tell you what happened there. <laughs> First of all, it's totally false, mm -hmm. totally made up. And voters should not be surprised if that doesn't happen again. Because what happened is it was a very hot race. And the uh, my opponents did polling and they found out how well I was doing. And that's when they came out with the false complaint. So I think Fitz News published it and he had, uh, he even, you know, I asked him to take that down because he knows it's not true. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, it, it was a he had a picture like of some kind of federal form where a complaint had been filed and it was absolutely false. Of course, it didn't show the signature of the person that filed the complaint because it was made up. Mm -hmm. So that's what um, dirty consultants do in campaigns to mm -hmm. harm their opponent is they lie. Oh, yeah. For so sure. it's, it's unfortunate, it but is. that's exactly what that was about. Yeah. Well, and that way, if it comes up, I mean, like I said, we reach a lot of people and um, now they got your feedback on that. So, uh, I mean, it's, you know, you guys, you go straight to the source's mouth right there and unfortunate things happen. But um, yeah, but you use but you use the word embezzlement and that's what really threw me off because that's not even what that was about. So oh, let's yeah, don't characterize it that way. Yeah. And that's and that's why I wanted you to, to specify on that and clear it up, because that's it's literally how they have it you know, wrote up and, and everything like that. And so you want to, you want to send me what you're looking at to, to make sure it's what I'm thinking about. Oh yes, ma'am. I can. It is. Um, it was it Fitz news. It is Fitz news. Yes. Yeah. It is yeah. Fitz news. That's exactly it. Um, yeah. That's what it is. Yes, ma'am. It's um, it was done. Dear editor. That was it. But yeah, we'd be more than glad to do that for sure. And I'm just glad you had a chance to, get it out and, you know, let people hear it from yourself because a lot of people don't know, I've, you know, Fitz news, they're not going to know what that is. They're not, yeah. but it was Sherry great. And I'm looking forward to this campaign. Um, like I truly am. Like I say, we'll, we'll be joined by the other candidates and, and it's going to be interesting to hear what everyone has to say. And, uh, like I said, I mean, this is our, our children's future here at stake. And so, uh, you've touched on it's some, our country. It's yeah. our country's it's our country's survival is what's at stake. Exactly. You, you've touched on some very um, key topics there. And uh, again, like I said, I've never thought about the cameras in the classroom, but if we can have them on school buses and all over the property, why aren't they in the classrooms? So I, I like that for sure. I like that 100%.
yes, it's, it's going to be interesting. And, um, yeah, I can't thank you enough for everything you're doing. And I look forward to seeing what the future holds for South Carolina in this campaign race here. Okay. Well, thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Ms. Sherry. And uh, I appreciate your time and joining us here today and, and going through this interview with us. Like I say, we went a little over, but uh, again, it was all it was all great. So I appreciate it. Sure. All right, Sherry. Well, you have a good one. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming in. Sure. Thank you. All righty. All right, guys. That was Sherry Few, candidate for SC superintendent. You heard it here first live on podcast 1854 you guys send me some feedback tell me what you think and we'll go from there we'll be joined by mrs ellen weaver and mrs kenzie gibson you'll get a chance to hear their side of the story what their goals and thoughts are about the issues going on in the education nationwide state level local level and we're going to be the ones to bring it to you. So saying that, I hope you all have a great day. It is Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's. Enjoy the evening and stay tuned for more. For those of you following this podcast, if you would consider making a small donation so we can continue to produce these episodes and keep you guys on the front lines of what's going on around our state. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Peaks Production and the South Carolina Federation of Republican Men. Please subscribe for more.